Hello everyone, Justin Vakula here with another episode in my Stoic Philosophy series. Today's episode will feature special guest Dr. William Irwin, Chair of the Philosophy Department at King's College in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, who joins me to discuss parallels between Stoic philosophy and existentialism, his recent book, The Free Market Existentialist, Capitalism Without Consumerism, and his recent Psychology Today article titled The Authentic Innerer, Hell is Other People on an Airport Shuttle. Dr. William Irwin is the Herve A. LeBlanc Distinguished Service Professor and Chair of Philosophy at King's College in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. He has a PhD in philosophy from the State University of New York at Buffalo and focuses on aesthetics, especially in the philosophy of literature, existentialism, hermeneutics, Eastern philosophy, and political philosophy. He's authored several scholarly and popular books, including the novel Free Dakota, the book Black Sabbath and Philosophy, Metallica and Philosophy, and Matrix and Philosophy. Visit my website at justinvacula.com, where you can find links to my social portals, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and see past Stoic Philosophy content on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. My Stoic Philosophy series explores the philosophical tradition of Stoicism, with goals to inform, empower, and help others benefit from the practical wisdom of ancient Greek, Roman, and modern thinkers. I tackle many topics, including handling adversity, finding meaning in life, working toward contentment, dealing with change, anger, and gratitude. All right, on to today's conversation. All right, thank you for joining me for a conversation today. Thanks for having me, Justin. Pleasure to be with you. All right, so we're here to talk about parallels between Stoicism and existentialism. Can you give a short introduction to existentialism for listeners? Yeah, that's great, Justin. I, I've often thought there are some important parallels between existentialism and Stoicism, so I'm really glad that you've asked me about this. So just to start about existentialism, for those who are not uh, already acquainted, a sort of a textbook definition that I come up with is this. That it's a philosophy that reacts to an absurd or meaningless world by urging the individual to overcome alienation, oppression, and despair through acts of freedom and self-creation to become a genuine person. So that's a bit of a mouthful. Let, let me uh, gloss that a little bit. So existentialism is a philosophy that focuses on the existing individual as opposed to the group and as opposed to just speaking in the abstract about what it means to be a person. It's a philosophy of freedom and responsibility. It's been characterized as a philosophy of optimistic toughness, individual authenticity. So basically it boils down to no excuses. And the genuine or authentic individual, which is really the goal, the aim, is someone who doesn't live by a script, right? Isn't dictated to by God or government, refuses to be told what to read or what kind of job to get or what age to marry or how many children to have or car to drive or what to eat or drink or smoke, right? Authentic individual defines herself. And authenticity, we might say, really boils down to facing reality and taking responsibility. All right, so you said it was a philosophy of mental toughness. Let's talk a little bit about that. What are some existentialist approaches to handling adversity? How can we be tough in spite of suffering and some of the harder elements of life? Yes, yeah, so the negative characterization of existentialism tends to be one of pessimism, but really Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the granddaddy of the existentialists, characterized his philosophy as one of optimistic toughness, and I agree. And it's a philosophy that really is well suited to dealing with adversity, as you suggest. Sartre said, being in nothingness, that the slave in chains is as free as his master. That's a bit of hyperbole, perhaps, 
but it really resonates with Stoicism. Listeners may know Epictetus, one of the uh, best known of the Stoic philosophers, was literally a slave for uh, a period of mm-hmm. his life. And he said, I was never more free than when I was on the rack. <laughs> a, pretty, a pretty shocking and hyperbolic statement, perhaps. This suggests the link between existentialism and Stoicism in that for both, it's really a matter of how you frame a situation that you find yourself in. Obviously, there are better and worse, more and less desirable physical circumstances in which to find oneself, and being a slave is about as bad as it gets, and as Epictetus is referring to being a slave who's on the rack being tortured is perhaps the worst possibility. Your body is literally somebody else's property, and it's being beaten and punished uh, with no control in your case. But what both Sartre and Epictetus, the Stoic, are emphasizing is that even in the worst possible situation, your mind remains free and you remain in charge of how you frame the situation, what you make out of it. Right. In Stoic thought, there are a lot of lines on we could make problems for ourselves in catastrophizing situations and not really seeing reality for the way it is. And a lot of things that can happen to us can be outside of our control, things they call the, the indifference of life that won't ultimately compromise our character, but might make life a little bit tougher, like loss, poverty, things like that. But the Stoics seem to work toward a sense of contentment. How would the existentialists do that? Would, would they go along the same means? Yeah, right. So, so it, it's a matter of framing your, your situation, dealing with some of these uh, inevitable down points uh, of life, as you mentioned, for example, loss, grief, death, this sort of thing. The existentialists but basically look at it in, in a similar way. Uh, it's a matter of how you frame things. And of course, it can actually heighten your appreciation for what you do have and what is going well in your life. And it, it, for the existentialist, it's not so much what the Stoic aims at in terms of contentment or ease. There's maybe more of an emphasis on the struggle itself and embracing the struggle and uh, embracing the adversity as something that leads to proper challenge and the possibility of self-definition, authenticity, self-creation. Oh, I see. That, that's interesting. There's an attitude in Seneca's works a lot about bring it on, that if poverty should find me, I'll be prepared for it. There's a lot of talk of anticipating negative outcomes that can happen and that if we could think ahead, we could realize that maybe these things won't be as bad and we could still handle it. We could still prevail given the amount of suffering. Yeah, I, I think that that fits with the existentialist view. And in, in some ways, uh, perhaps it's me reading Seneca and the uh, the Stoics into the existentialist. But th- there's an undeniable existentialist, I should say, Stoic element uh, of existentialism. And it may not have quite the extent of envisioning a negative outcome the way that Seneca did in, for example, preparing for poverty or eating uh, sparsely and some of the things mm. that he did. But it has a similar kind of suggestion for how we should react to difficulty and adversity and in, in, in making the most of it. And, and so, for example, one of the quintessential existentialist stories is uh, Albert Camus' retelling of the myth of Sisyphus, right? right? right. The, the Greek myth in which uh, Sisyphus is condemned by the gods to roll a rock to the top of the hill mm-hmm. every day only to have it roll back down, right? And part of what is so awful about that punishment is it's completely pointless, right? It's not even like he's slave labor building the pyramids and seeing something monumental arise from the sands. It's just an awful, pointless punishment. But Camus suggests that we imagine Sisyphus happy, that uh, he can find some joy and some purpose 
in the very act of rolling his rock, uh, that in controlling his mind and what he makes of that situation, even the pointless punishment of Sisyphus can be overcome. Right, and different people are going to react to things differently, whereas some people might really lose their cool if, say, someone takes a parking spot they normally park in, and for others, they just won't see this as a big deal, right? So mindset has a lot to deal with this handling adversity. Yeah, it, it has everything to do with it, right? And that's a nice example that you give of somebody taking a parking spot. My my mother and, and father have this reaction whenever anyone, <laughs> my father's now deceased, but whenever they park in front of our house as if that, that's their designated spot. And of course, somebody else uh, would have no reaction to it at all. So it really is not about the objective happening, but really about the mind frame that the person takes, right? And this can be in the most extreme situations. You referenced uh, death before. The stoic attitude towards death, of course, is one of uh, accepting it as inevitable. And I, right, I, I, right. Think, I, I think of a student I had many years ago who died at a young age of leukemia. I think he was 19 or 20. And he had oh. two brothers, both of whom reacted very differently to it. One brother had the uh, the very human reaction of feeling as if this was not fair and that life was cruel and why would this happen to his brother? And then the other brother had, without knowing it, I think a very stoical reaction that was really uh, flavored by a sense of, of gratitude, that he, he took the attitude that he was lucky to have his brother in his life for the period of time that he did, that he would celebrate his life in memory and, uh, and wouldn't let it sour him. I, I think this this fits very much with the, uh, the existentialist view of death as well, where uh, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger in particular, puts an emphasis on the inevitability of death and the way in which this inevitability of death and recognizing this, right? This is one of the things we tend to want to deny. We say people in general will die, but we don't really personalize it in some sense. There's almost a built-in denial mechanism that we have about our own death. But Heidegger urges us to really fully recognize the inevitability of our own death and the individuality of our own death and use that not as catalyst for morbid, morose contemplation, but rather to catalyze uh, a sort of a seize the day mentality mm -hmm. in really making the most out of life. Yeah, definitely in Stoic Thought, it talks about uh, your friends may pass, they may die earlier than you, so enjoy your friends now while you can make the most of these experiences and don't let time pass you by are common themes throughout the text. Sure. Yeah, let's move on then to finding meaning in life. You mentioned death. For some, they'll see death as some sort of threat to finding meaning in life, or they'll take maybe a more nihilistic attitude of, oh, well, what's going to matter a hundred or a thousand years from now? There's not going to be meaning, so why, why bother? They might take an attitude like that. But existentialism offers some meaning in life. Yeah, so, so this is one of the negative stereotypes, mischaracterizations of, uh, of existentialism, that it's simply morose and gloomy, and it's about some French guy sitting around in a cafe <laughs> smoking cigarettes and bemoaning the meaninglessness of it all. And, and like most stereotypes, it's deserved on a certain level, but uh, if that's all you see of it, uh, you, you really missed the point with, with existentialism. For, for Sartre and most of the French existentialists, it's true that they think there's no pre-given meaning of life in the sense of no divine purpose. But if we simply stop there, or we draw the uh, mistaken conclusion that that means life isn't worthwhile, 
and isn't worth living uh, maximally, then we miss the point of existentialism. Because there's actually uh, an upside to this, which is if that there's no divine purpose or pre-given meaning, we're liberated to choose our own goals and set our own projects and mm-hmm. attribute our own significance to life. And so even if in a technical sense there would be no meaning of life, there can be certainly meaning in life in the sense of the significance and the zest and the joy that we take and find and place in life, despite the fact that really it's not there to start with. I I tend to think of life uh, in the existentialist sense as as a bit like a a piece of driftwood that may not uh, have been thrown out on the waves for the purpose of becoming a work of art, but perhaps through what it goes through on the waves and uh, the way it's cast ashore and the way in which we then take it and frame it uh, on the mantelpiece. We make something of it that wasn't there to start with. Right. That's, that's an interesting metaphor because, yeah, a, lo- a lot of things may happen that change us, experiences that we have, and, and taking our own direction and choosing what we want to do rather than someone external to us saying, well, this is how you should definitely live. This is the only thing, right? And th- there could be a lot of that imposition from maybe friends, family members, people in relationships. But but existentialism offers an individualistic attitude to this, yes, that, that we can find purpose. Right. It's, it's, it's liberating. I mean, at first, for the existentialist, It may be uh, disconcerting, right, Uh, if what one thought was the pre-given meaning or purpose of life as dictated by uh, God or religion is removed. There's something upsetting about that loss and disconcerting about that loss. It's much more difficult to have something taken away than to have never had it in Mm -hmm. the first place. But one can rebound from that and and recognize this is ultimately a good thing because I'm not stuck with the one purpose that would have been dictated by God or religion. Instead, I'm free to choose for myself, and it's a terrific opportunity. Right. So one objection that we might get from some religious camps is, oh, well, if there's no objective meaning or this objective values, maybe we can get into that more later on the values question. But, oh, well, isn't it all subjective then? So what do we say about the Hitlers of the world who think that meaning is found in in killing other people? What would existentialists have to say to that? Well, I mean, that that is a a criticism that existentialism has has faced since the time of Sartre. And moving away from from the values question, uh, we, we might simply say, well, what if somebody chooses to collect bottle caps uh, for their life and that's what they find their meaning? And isn't that a pretty trivial or a pretty nonsensical way of living? And I, I think the answer to that is that it is, but it also really doesn't fit with what most human beings really would want. Biologically, we're sort of programmed to want certain kinds of things out of life and that usually that involves some kind of meaningful significant interaction with other people rather than the solitary activity of collecting bottle caps mm-hmm. but but if a person genuinely did find that meaningful significant worthwhile there isn't very much to say in response to them. Well, likewise, I think with the extreme choices of uh, horrific behaviors like a Hitler or a child molester or something like that, uh, those people are such outliers that we may condemn them for reasons quite apart from whether or not that's really a, a meaningful life. And thankfully, the sort of permission that uh, existentialism gives us to choose freely doesn't mean that uh, people are going to then want to choose to do all kinds of horrific things, right? I mean, I don't really uh, feel uh, at a loss that I haven't punched any baby 
easily. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah. it, it, I don't have any desire to do that, and quite frankly, uh, the vast majority, the uh, way beyond the vast majority of people, simply don't have that uh, that kind of inclination. So I think most worries tend to be overblown as to what uh, would be done with the permission that existentialism grants. Mm-hmm. And even in Stoic thought, there, there's talk about what, what is the good part of human nature. Well, we recognize that humans are so, social animals and that we want to prosper, that we want to have a fulfilled life. And maybe some will lack wisdom, as the Stoics say, and just let time pass them by and be passive about life. But maybe with education, with experience, with knowledge, that people can rise to more significance in life and find a, a meaning that they find fitting with their skills and interests. And have balance, too. So maybe that person can collect bottle caps, but they're also going to do more things. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and the cultivation of a sort of practical wisdom as the Stoics speak about it is really what, what improves life for us, right? So I, I always think of the, the student away at college for the first time who parties too much in freshman year and, you know, eats and drinks too much and doesn't get to class enough, etc. Mm-hmm. Some of them end up dropping out, but most of them end up learning from their own mistakes and, and reforming and, uh, and getting their act together somewhere along the way, right? Uh, It's that great responsibility that some 18-year-olds experience for the first time being away, and and they abuse it. And and no doubt existentialism gives us the permission to abuse our freedom, but uh, hopefully our own wisdom over time can correct for that. Yeah, and in in Stoic Thought, they mentioned that, well, you're you're going to learn from some past behaviors that you have, and maybe you had a naive attitude about things, but when you've learned more of the world, you've learned to focus on what is good and have loftier goals. That's an optimistic perspective. Sure, sure. All right, well, let's move on to the next one. Existential thoughts on coping with death and grief. We've talked about that a little bit earlier in our discussion, but can you offer some more thoughts that the existentialists will have on death and grief, how to deal with these things? I think we've, we've hit on that pretty well. The, the main figure who who, fit, who comes to mind in that regard is Heidegger, who really is urging us, I think, more so than even the uh, the Stoics uh, do to recognize the individuality of our own death, right? Uh, and that it's not simply an abstract consideration, right? Like all men are mortal, Socrates is mortal, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing, right? Uh, it, it's not an abstract syllogistic consideration, but really the individual's recognition of his or her own mortality and really what that means for heightening one's appreciation for life and choosing to live a genuine or authentic life. As for grief, of course, the lessons can be extrapolated from that, that just as one is fated to die, so is everyone else. Looking at somebody else's death, the reaction should not be one of, well, that happened to to Joe, but uh, really that's not going to happen to me, right? Uh Uh, Even though nobody literally says that, we tend to have this subconscious uh, denial mechanism that suggests, well, that that poor guy, uh, but that's not me. All right, well, let's move on to the next topic here of free will. What may be in our control and not be? And this this term free will may be like meaning. We have to understand what, what are people saying here? What are people getting at? What do they mean by the terms? So what do you think of with the term free will here? And what are the existentialist perspectives on it? 
Yeah, so I mean, the existentialists are, are in some ways all over the map on this. I, I keep coming back to Sartre in the sense that he's the, the granddaddy of them, but uh, I can't say that there's one thing true of all the existentialists, because in, in emphasizing freedom, one of the uh, figures uh, who's usually counted as an existentialist, Nietzsche, believed that freedom of the will was simply an illusion. That aside, Sartre and, and most of the existentialists suggest that uh, we do have complete freedom in the metaphysical or ontological sense, which is not to confuse it with the physical or the political sense, right? So I'm completely free to attempt to fly by flapping my wings or my... (laughs) Or my arms, I should say. I don't have wings. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe in my dreams. But I'm not free to succeed, obviously, right? Uh, so we're free in, in the absolute sense to try anything. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're free to succeed, nor does it mean that we have the complete uh, political freedom to do whatever, that, whatever we might want to. But uh, rather than dwell on uh, the limitations that our finite physical selves impose on us or the restrictions that we face politically, the existentialist emphasis tends to be on this tremendous freedom that we have. And with it comes the tremendous responsibility that we have for what we do, in fact, choose and the actions we do, in fact, take. Right. In Stoic thought, there's a common phrase it's up to us and there's focus on uh, what's called the impressions right that we're going to have certain judgments about things and people that happen in the world so that's in our power to be affected by that to come to a certain conclusion about it it's in our power it's up to us are the common phrases in the literature what what about existentialism Are, are they saying well okay we can have a different mindset different people can react differently or maybe can some environmental things really be crippling and take away a sense of freedom yeah so i mean existentialism particularly sartre and existentialism came in for quite a bit of criticism for its emphasis on absolute complete total freedom right it would seem like there are some things that uh your, your physical limitations are going to really restrict you with right so for example it seems uh, impossible that a blind person will ever play major league baseball mm-hmm. but then again who knows maybe with increased uh, technology and uh allowances uh, maybe that maybe even that's possible right i mean you can imagine the blind person who has this undying desire to play major league baseball and uh Uh, gets himself involved in whatever technology is going to allow him to sense the presence of the ball, uh, even though he doesn't have a sense of sight. I mean, this is beyond uh, anything that uh, technically is possible at this point, but it's that kind of striving and that kind of reconceiving of the situation that Sartre champions, right? And and again, it's, it comes down to reframing as well. A mountain in front of you is uh, an obstacle if you need to be on the other side of it. It's a thing of beauty if you simply want to look at it. Place of recreation if you want to scale it recreationally, right? It really is very much up to you in that regard. All right, well, let's move on to the next topic, human nature. What are some thoughts from existentialists on human nature? Yeah, so Sartre in particular denies that there is a human nature. Uh, His very short definition of existentialism is that existence precedes essence. In other words, we come to be, we come to exist, really without an essence, without preordained characteristics And in this way, he means to contrast us with things like a can opener or a tree, right? A can opener just is what it is. It's a can opener. 
It's made what it was. The tree comes into being as what it is. It's a tree. It's not difficult to be a tree or a can opener. No choices are involved, right? The human being comes into being, yes, biologically human, but needs to choose in order to form his or her own essence through the course of life, right? I get to choose what I'm going to do uh, career-wise, how I'm going to spend my time, what character I'm going to develop, right? This is not to ignore the fact that there are certain circumstances into which we're born and which we don't uh, actually choose. So Heidegger's terminology is to describe this facet of our being as thrown, which for me always calls to mind the the Doors song, Riders on the Storm, that has the... Uh the Heideggerian line of into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown. So sure, certain possibilities uh, are fixed and defined, but even some of those I I used to use as a a regular example in class in teaching Heidegger that one of our thrown characteristics is our sex, right? But uh, even that these days with transgenderism seems to be uh, much more malleable than uh, at one time was thought to be. Ability to reconceive ourselves, remake ourselves is very much in line with the existentialist view on human nature. What about capacity to to reason that the mind being something very important that people want to strive to to know more that people are curious perhaps maybe that can be an element of human nature for the existentialists? Well, I, I certainly would would say it is, but but Sartre just takes this very hard line approach on it that becomes difficult to defend. So yeah, the the use of reason, right? Uh, Aristotelian definition of the human being as the rational animal, right? After all, if we don't have reason, how is it that we can choose well? Uh, emotion is not a a reliable guide. Sartre just takes a really hard line on that, denying right. And in the Stoic thoughts, capacity to be rational that's that's frequently talked that that all people won't be. They they won't exercise right judgment, they won't exercise right reason, but that they have the capacity to do that with, with knowledge and education, as we've talked about earlier. Sure. All right, so what about some existentialist thoughts on self-improvement and self-reliance? Yeah, so if we th- if we think back to the, uh, the definition uh, in textbook style that I threw out there to begin with, one of the goals, as I see it, of existentialism is self-creation, right? Uh, and ideally, one creates oneself as an authentic, genuine individual. Self-improvement, right, uh, is potentially, if not limitless, uh, quite nearly unbound in terms of what we can do to improve ourselves if we have a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. Existentialism, as I see it, is very much a philosophy of self-reliance in the in the spirit that we see it uh, earlier on in, uh, in Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau among the early Americans, right, in the sense that we're responsible for making who we are, uh, creating who we are, improving who we are. Right. Maybe, maybe, yes, there will be a lot of excuses or a lot of blame, as we've talked about earlier, that people will point to others, and that surely there can be some influence from others, but yet there can be some accountability and some initiative that people can take to improve. Sure. So in the, in the existentialist terminology, there's always only freedom in a situation, but we get to make what we make of the situation, right? Whether that's being imprisoned, enslaved, born into privilege, whatever it may be, we get to define and uh, and make the most of, or in some cases, the least of the situation in which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, so more, more self-reflection will certainly be helpful as that's a common theme in Stoic thought to, to know yourself and throughout philosophy, 
really, and to be aware and to be mindful of what's happening. Yeah, I, I think that's a theme we see continuing through existentialism as well, the injunction to know yourself. Uh, if, you're, if you don't know yourself and if you're not honest with yourself, you, you really end up wasting a lot of time and causing a lot of harm to yourself and other people. All right, let's move on to one of your recent books, The Free Market Existentialist, Capitalism Without Consumerism. Can you give us a brief overview of this? Yeah, so uh, the, the title is suggestive of the goal of the book, which is to suggest that the philosophy of existentialism is actually a good fit with free market principles, is not such a great fit with Marxist or socialist principles. And to the listener who's not really acquainted with existentialism, this might just seem obvious from what I've been saying so far in the sense that both existentialism and free markets stress the importance of the individual, stress the importance of individual freedom and mm. responsibility. They, they seem to me and might seem to the listener to be an automatic fit. But one of the uh, ironies historically is that Sartre and most of the French existentialists were Marxists and socialists. Uh, and so the book has the task of showing that this was uh, a sort of an odd historical accident and right. maybe not the, uh, the ideal fit uh, that might otherwise be assumed. Right. And, and capitalism, as suggested in your book, it, it gets a, a bad reputation as saying, well, oh, look at all of the bad things that it can bring about. But you focus on some of the good things and say that, oh, well, we don't have to have this consumerist attitude about that, that we can be more humble and content with ourselves rather than getting involved in this keeping up with the Joneses attitude, right? Yeah. So, I mean, th this fits with, with existentialism. If I'm self-defining, if I'm ultimately and absolutely free, then I'm not just a product of my economic system, as Marxism would suggest, right? This is one of the, the tenets of Marxism, that uh, economic reality dictates everything else. And, and that's just really a poor fit with existentialism that says that, no, I myself get to define who I am, and I'm ultimately free from the, uh, the economic or social system in which I find myself. So there are plenty of things you may not like about uh, a capitalist society, but the existentialist sees himself or herself as free to define apart from the uh, the market forces or the social forces that are there and, and reap whatever benefits uh, he may find or she may find of the free market system without being trapped by whatever uh, some of the negatives might seem to be. Right. And Stoic writers, they often talk about greed and desire for a lavish lifestyle as a vice, a disease, and they even advocate a modest, minimalist lifestyle with few desires. In your book, you quote Seneca, who wrote, a thatched roof once covered free men under marble and gold dwells slavery. Can you expand on that? Yeah, right. So uh, a thatched roof once covered free men, right? Living simply oftentimes is uh, living freely, right? And under marble and gold dwells slavery, right? What do you mm -hmm. become enslaved to but the desire for more and more, right? And right. Keeping, up, keeping up status, keeping up appearance, feeding the desire for luxury. This is, again, I, I think, a place of overlap between what I see as the free market existentialist view and the stoic view that we don't necessarily need to be slaves to our own desires. This is one of the things that people fear about capitalist society and free market economies, that they necessarily 
make drones out of us uh, consumerists right. enslaved to our own desires. And that's probably one of the reasons that Sartre and the other existentialists turned to, uh, to Marxism. But as I argue in the book, I think this was a mistaken move on their part. It's quite possible to choose a modest, even minimalist lifestyle in a capitalist society and have the best of both worlds. Right. So we, we could just say no and say, oh, well, maybe we could be happy with less that we don't need these things to have a great life that, well, okay, maybe it would be nice if we had some of these certain things. The Stoics talk about indifference, as I mentioned, that some things may be preferred, but in some cases we can be corrupted. Maybe if we have too much wealth and, and use that poorly, that could end in a bad situation. Or yes, we can be slavish to our desires and really never be satisfied. Yeah, I mean, that's what I see with uh, a lot of my peers, people who I graduated college with, that kind of thing, who make a lot more money than I do as a, as a college professor, a lot of them making big money on Wall Street and things like that. But they don't really have time the way that I have time. I have my, my summers off to do as, a, as I wish with, uh, including talking to you on podcasts yeah, and pursuing, for on. <laughs> <laughs> pursuing my various interests and uh, I, I'm, I'm not worried about whether I have the the newest uh, Mercedes I'm driving my uh, my older Chevy you know and yeah. to me that works out quite well yeah and at some point I mean what is the extra money really going to do is it going to make that much of a difference that if you have a lot of the essentials covered you have a little bit more maybe for security or some sort of emergency fund if you need it is it really going to have that much more of a payoff and yes what's the exchange of working these extreme hours you're not satisfied in the position you are that people are working to accumulate more money but do they really get that freedom do they get to enjoy life as much. Yeah, no, there's real diminishing returns with every dollar that, that you make. And, and sure, security is nice, and I, I make a good living, and I have security and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, but it, it, again, boils down to a matter of, uh, of framing, as the, the old saw has it. If you want to feel rich, get some poor friends. If you want to feel poor, get some rich friends. <laughs> and, uh, lots of people who are wealthy uh, aspire to have more and more wealthy friends and end up feeling worse and worse about themselves as a result, I think. You know, keeping uh, keeping the common touch and, and living among people who don't necessarily have all that much and who don't aspire to keeps a person grounded, I think. Right. Maybe they've confused happiness or think that, oh, well, it has to come from these external things. And if I don't have them, I'm not going to be happy. Sure. I, th I think that it has a lot to do with it. The, uh, the dopamine rush of the next acquisition and whatever else the need to impress others have status it really boils down to uh you know consumerism right and sometimes stoicism gets a bad rap for advocating aestheticism or some kind of uh, extremely frugal lifestyle living in squalor but rather the writers talk about having a balance having a mean in living life and not living in extreme poverty and also not aspiring to the the life in a castle or something like that yeah minimalism i think is what's called for a lot in the text yeah, so, reducing I, greed, reducing desires, reducing expectations. I, I think that's exactly it, right? It's it's an inside job in terms of your own desires, expectations. That's what you can ultimately control. You can't control whether the stock market goes up or down, or whether the public uh, likes your latest record, or whatever the case right, right. may be. Right? You can't control those things. But you can control your de desires and your expectations. All right, let's move on to an article that you recently published in Psychology Today titled The Authentic Introvert, Hell is Other People on an Airport Shuttle. 
Can you talk a little bit about what led to that article? Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm an introvert. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the uh, the terminology, it's not exactly the same thing as, as being shy, right? A shy person tends to be diffident and uh, unassertive and oftentimes regrets uh, not having the move made the assertion that he or she uh, wished they had. An introvert really is better defined as somebody who gets uh, easily drained by social interactions as compared to an extrovert. I think of Bill Clinton as the classic example of the extrovert, right? He just thrived on personal interaction, working the room, shaking hands, couldn't get enough, right? Was actually energized by that. Introverts tend to be depleted uh, by that, which is not to say that they can't do it, right? So Amy Schumer, the uh, comedian, uh, is uh, an, an introvert. Uh, she finds it very draining to interact with, uh, with people, but she loves to perform. Uh, likewise, right. I love to teach. But uh, it, it has its price, right? So the article that you're talking about, which was published on my Psychology Today blog, talked about uh, an encounter I had on an airport shuttle coming home from a conference where I was just drained by the uh, the conference and uh, all the interaction that was involved and looking forward to just kind of finding my little corner on the airport shuttle and, and not <laughs> being bothered with anybody and uh, it, it just didn't happen that way. And so the the uh, subtitle of the piece is Hell is Other People on an Airport Shuttle, which is uh, the allusion to, to Sartre's play, No Exit, where one of the characters makes the declaration that hell is other people, right? right Meaning right. basically that other people are constantly trying to define us, objectify us, put us in a box or a category. And we're constantly struggling against that in order to define ourselves and be who we authentically are. Uh, I found myself in this uh, this situation where I had my uh, earbuds in, uh, <laughs> pretending to listen to my iPod, giving every kind of nonverbal signal that I could to suggest I really uh, am not up for talking right now. And uh, a group of uh, enthusiastic conference goers got on the, the shuttle right <laughs> after me. And uh, we're all uh, so happy to uh, see other people who have been at the conference and uh, exchange uh, anecdotes and gossip about it. And one of them in particular started asking me all these questions about, oh, how was the conference for you? And where are you from? And, right, and right. you know, so I, I, yeah, so I take the earbud out to pretend that I didn't hear her and ask her to repeat and kind of gets the message at least it seemed uh, and so I got left alone for the rest of the, the ride but then uh, at the end of the uh, the ride and we get at the airport she ends up asking me all the same questions again uh -huh. to uh, a non introvert that sounds like maybe no big deal and it sounds like come on just be friendly be nice get along but I was just so drained and, uh, you know, so not looking forward to any kind of interaction that uh, it, it was kind of like, uh, you know, Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm or Seinfeld situation where uh, my, my trivial worst nightmare was, was coming through. So that, right. that's basically what I'm talking about in the article there. Right. And in Stoic Thought, there's a lot of talk of encountering difficult people and to even anticipate that these things are going to happen and how are we going to deal with that to try to not let others drag us down to realize maybe that other people have different values and different personalities 
than we have. So, so maybe the introvert could seek some more of that solitude or a space to reset in a way. Although in the airport shuttle, yeah, you're just surrounded by people. So what do you really do there? There's a lot of immersion, close proximity. So maybe that can be difficult. Yeah, uh, but I, I guess the uh, the stoic would, would counsel me that uh, you should know what it is to get on an airport shuttle. Uh, you know, the <laughs> stoics. For it. Yeah, the stoics talk about going to the baths, right? If you're going to go to the baths, you better be prepared that people are going to splash and carry on right, and act right. a certain kind of way. Uh, so I had an unrealistic expectation of, uh, of shelter and solitude in this uh, this airport shuttle. I, won't, I guess I won't <laughs> do it again, right? And right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a matter of the, the state of mind that you're in and uh, really the state of body that you're in as well. I mean, I was just physically tired from, uh, from the conference in a way that maybe somebody else wouldn't be just because it takes a lot of uh, mental energy for me to socialize uh, in that kind of way and uh, maybe I should have been more aware of it and uh, there, are, there are things to do and uh, you know I, I don't think that anybody should take their introversion as uh, an excuse or get out of free, uh, jail free card to say that you never have to interact with people or make small talk this is part of being in the world and part of being a grown up uh, so right. You know that there is good stoic counsel for that. Uh, I right. just kind of wish that more people were more aware that there are different personality types, and and uh, an introvert is a, a perfectly valid type of person to be. And uh, you know maybe I would be a little bit better at recognizing somebody's body language and signals when they're slumped over with their uh, earbuds in on the airport shuttle that maybe that means they don't want to be talked to right 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 you know yes and maybe maybe you could see that as a challenge too in some sense in which to improve or think ahead as you said as yeah we're talking about being prudent and thinking about possible challenges that that we might face yeah absolutely i mean the irony of the situation was that one of the main reasons i didn't take a cab to the airport is that i was afraid of getting a chatty cab driver. Ah. So, I, so I, th- I thought I was actually planning well, but uh, it didn't work out that way. Not, I don't know. I, this I, time. I've never used Uber, but maybe uh, maybe Uber can have some preferences and settings and indications for introverts <laughs> and whatever There's else. There's a business idea for some listeners that might be entrepreneurial. The, the quiet cab driver. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Men- you mentioned that introverts, they're flooded with awareness of what other people are thinking and making judgments about, especially the introvert. Might all introverts be like this or might this vary from person to person? And can we work to change this mindset of thinking and focus? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it varies from uh, from person to person. One of the uh, people who commented on the uh, Psychology Today piece suggested, well, for her, it really isn't a matter in a situation like that, feeling defined or uh, wondering about what other people are thinking as it is just feeling barraged, uh, like uh, when somebody just wakes up out of a deep sleep, no matter who they are, they don't want to be asked a hundred different questions. And, and that's sort of the introvert experience. So I don't think all introverts are necessarily quite that way. And for those of us who are that way and are particularly sensitive, well, maybe there are things that we can do in terms of preparation and uh, thinking about it to uh, put ourselves in the best mindset to, to handle. Right. Uh, Kind of interaction or, or what if what if maybe even saying to the person oh i'm sorry i'm feeling really tired right now i just want to listen to music to calm down or something maybe maybe that would be an approach as well 
Yeah, that having uh, an excuse like that, you know, in your back pocket to pull out would, would certainly be helpful, right? Say, I'm not feeling very well, or I'm feeling very tired, excuse me, no offense, that kind of thing. Maybe that's uh, a more practical way to handle it than to uh, just hope and expect the world to recognize that you're an introvert. Right, to maybe try to fit in with the circumstances that we can't really change when the people are really interested in the conversation. That's it, right? Easier to put on a pair of slippers than to try to carpet the whole world, right? <laughs> right, right. All right, what are some of your other projects that listeners interested in Stoic philosophy might be interested in? Well, uh, I continue to teach a, a course in Eastern philosophy, which uh, actually I was lucky enough to have you as a student. Oh, in. thanks. Yes, it was a, it was a great class. It's oh, well, thanks. Yeah, so I continue to teach that, and I continue to be uh, impressed by some of the, the connections between Buddhism and Stoicism and Taoism and Stoicism. And I actually had a student this past semester write a, a senior thesis that looked at uh, a number of those connections, in particular f focusing on simplicity and frugality. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I, that I continue to, to think about. And uh, I'm actually re reading a book now at the moment uh, called The Book of Joy, which uh, is a dialogue between the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu, which is really not uh, a religious book in any sense, despite the fact those being two religious leaders, but really is very much bound up with the number of the issues that we've been talking about in terms of getting in control of one's own mindset and reacting in particular to difficulty and, and find, finding joy even in the midst of adversity. And your, your recent book also, Free Dakota, right? Yeah, so Free Dakota is a, is a novel uh, about uh, a libertarian uh, secession movement in, in North Dakota that feeds into uh, some pretty stoical and, and pretty existentialist themes as well. Thanks for, for mentioning that. I appreciate the plug. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, of course, yes. And here, here's another line. This is one from Seneca on, on the matter of making progress and self-improvement. He, he writes here, How much progress shall I make, you ask, just as much as you try to make? Why do you wait? Wisdom comes haphazard to no man. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, it, it really speaks to the importance of, uh, of making an effort and also the idea of a, of a growth mindset, right? Too many people... I think have the uh, the fixed mindset where improvement is impossible in certain areas. I'll never be able to mm -hmm. play a musical instrument well, or I'll never be able to speak a foreign language, or I'll never be good at my job, or whatever it might be. But uh, although we're not all destined to be uh, concert pianists or Michael Jordan on the basketball court, there's just tremendous possibility for improvement and capacity for improvement. Uh, for all of us if we have the, the right sort of growth mindset and making progress in the kind of person we want to be really most fundamentally. Right, so a realistic mindset, some goal setting and some, some courage, right, rather than a self-defeating attitude. Yeah, courage, absolutely. And, and having people who encourage us, right, who, uh, who push us along and help us along in what we're doing. Right. All right. Well, that's that's about all. Do you have anything to add or any other takeaways for listeners? No, maybe I'll just say something about the, uh, the subtitle of my book, which we talked about before, which is uh, Capitalism Without Consumerism. To, to a lot of people, that sounds like uh, kind of an oxymoron. But uh, I, I don't think it is. By, by consumerism, I mean this sort of addictive drive or desire to have the best and the latest goods and services to derive your own self-worth and to signal your worth to other people. And by that, I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with wanting nice things. 
but there is something wrong when when uh, the desires have you rather than you have the desires, right? Right, and being so, slavish, right? Being slavish to your desires, right? And and so th- this to kind of tie in with uh, what we talked about before, living in. Uh, a capitalist society, a free market system. Yeah, the the temptation is always there to want more and more and to allow yourself to be defined by desires and by uh, products and by uh, the car you drive or whatever. And I, I think of the, the movie Fight Club uh, where mm-hmm. the, the, the Tyler Durden character is saying that uh, we have jobs we, we hate to buy shit we don't want. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's the problem, right? It, the problem is not wanting some nice things or, or living well or comfortably. Uh, it's the problem when you have that situation, right, where you, you're working a job that you hate to buy shit you don't even really need or want. Yeah. That's when, you, that's when you've got a problem. And, and this external approval thing is interesting because are, are the people you want approval from those who really matter to you, right? I mean, are they close friends? Wouldn't they value you for you rather than your possessions or what you can display? Exactly. And and if they are judging you on those terms, are those really the people uh, who, you, who you want to be in your life? Right. It was a simple quote from Seneca I really like. It was, be your own spectator, seek your own applause. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a lot to be learned from existentialism and stoicism. And yeah, I think we can take some good things away from it. It's a, a quote here to sign us off uh, from Seneca. Do I then follow no predecessors? Yes, but I allow myself to discover something new, to alter, to reject. I am not a slave to them, although I give them my approval. Very nice. All right, and where can people find you online? Well, but anybody uh, who has Google can... Put in William Irwin at King's College and find my uh, my webpage and get my email address there. I'm always glad to hear from people through email. I'm also on Twitter and uh, Facebook, which you can find easily enough also linked through the, the, the webpage if you like. And I'm always glad to connect with people and, uh, and dialogue that way as well. Right. I'll have links in the show notes. But yes, I'm seeing it's staff.kings.edu slash W.T. Irwin, I-R-W-I-N. That's it. All right. Very good. So thank you for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Justin. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. Visit my website at justinvacula.com where you can find links to my social portals, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See past Stoic Philosophy content on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Consider donating if you support my work and would like to see more, for this takes time, money, and effort to produce content. Have a great day.